friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, everyone. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, April 13th. This is episode 85, brought to you by the following Patreon Larsians. James Hogan, Giovanni, and Scott Bowen. And the new ones, Daniel, Jonathan, and Megan. Thank you all for allowing me to keep going with my Marvel songs, my podcast, my YouTube videos. So shout out to all of y'all. And as always, I want to kick off the show with this week's MC, MC Lars, Lars, Patreon, Patreon Larson Larson of, the, of week. the week. This week, we hear from Chris Walker in Durham, North Carolina, who talks about how he discovered me through two separate collabs with two very different artists. Chris, take it away. Hey, my name's Chris Walker. Um, honestly, I found out about your music thanks to your collaboration. Uh, years ago, a Humble Bundle did a, did a uh, music bundle, and there was a uh, MC Frenola album on there and your uh, Captains of Industry collab with him was on it. So I forward to a few years later and uh, I'm in a Bowling for Soup fan page on Facebook and somebody posts that there's a collab between you and Jared Reddick from Bowling for Soup download the song. After hearing you uh, collab with two artists that I came to like, I'm like, you know what? I need to look into his stuff. I'm in love with your stuff, man. I have your whole discography now. Love it. Thanks, man, for all you do. Thank you, Chris. I am honored. I have sent you an MC Lars t-shirt. And if you want to be on the MC Lars podcast, leave a message about how you first heard me or a concert or really anything, go to patreon.com slash MC Lars. If you sign up, you get the secret proprietary phone number, which gets you in to the message machine where I check the messages and I'll hit you back. And uh, if your message is tight, I'll use it on the show and you get a free T-shirt as well as like over 100 unreleased MC Lars songs you probably haven't heard through the Patreon service. This week's podcast is a little different. Um, I read, what was it? There was a great New York Times article on Weird Al's Enduring Legacy. And I was like, man, I love that article. And I feel like I've been so lucky to work with and meet so many of my heroes and collaborators and like even, you know, meeting my wife through the music business and like my favorite people and, you know, people I look up to who I was able to build friendships with and all these weird, strange, free, wonderful people who are able to be themselves. And I was just feeling so grateful about that. And my friend Mike, who I had on the podcast, he's a guitarist, bass player, tour manager. I work with a lot who I've known for like 14 years. Mike was like, we should do an episode of the podcast where I interview you. So I, as in Mike, interview you, as in Lars, about how you write songs and why you do what you do. And I was like, okay. I mean, since he suggested, I was like, I'm down. And I guess he should probably be doing this intro, but um, there's a lot of business to cover. That's why I'm doing it. So I was like, all right, let's let's rock it, Mike. So this is Mike's very thoughtful, awesome interview we did remotely a few days ago. And I thought I'd drop it in because it's kind of relevant. But uh, yeah, so this is my interview with Mike Russo. Actually, it's Mike Russo's interview with me on the MC Lars podcast. All right. How's it going? <laughs> so, Mike, you're the host today. I am the host today. So you you are the joyful smiles guy. It's a conscious choice 
to say like, Hey, look, kind of no matter what's going on, joyful smiles. And I wonder like, did it start as like a sarcastic, like, Oh, CPs. And then over time it became real. Or have you just always had this like sunny outlook? Uh, well, the first time I heard those two words together, my cousin Stuart, who you met when you stayed with us in Hollywood that one time. Oh yeah. He was talking about Disney. Dis- he went to Disneyland and they had a parade where they had uh, fireworks and they had projections of happy children with joyful smiles. And he talked about how it was kind of like corny and silly. And this was, <laughs> he was like, we were teenagers. And I remember thinking those words together has an uh, like has an air of like, that is such a weird juxtaposition of words. Yeah. Right. Um, so I just, when anything to me that feels strange, I kind of just incorporate it and say it a million times to get people's reaction. Cause you add those two words together and it's this whole, um, juxtaposition of like, is he serious when he yeah. says that? Does he actually feel that way? Is he, was he, is he like is something wrong with him? I always think it's what's that Aristotle or someone said, it's a wise thing to appear foolish. Oh, you know? okay. Someone said that. And I think that, you know, I got everyone at, on warp tour to say it. And like, <laughs> it's just, I, you know, I, on the flip side, I am a Christian and I am like, I am someone with faith and like, I've always feel like things will work out. Yeah. I've had, my life has been, you know, for the most part, pretty good. I've had hard things happen, but things always work out. And so it's part of that bad brains PMA thing, right? The positive mental yeah. attitude. It's just my yeah. version of that. Um, if you, it's like the secret, right? If you manifest good things and believe that they will happen, they're more likely to happen than if you don't. And that's not to say all you have to do is just sit in a room and say, okay, I'm going to be a, a, a rapper who tours. That's just going to automatically happen. You have to have action too. And I think, yeah, you know what I mean? So how's that answer? I think it's pretty good. And it, it's funny. I remember you were the first person that ever told me about the secret. I was, oh, yeah. I was sitting in a car. I had just seen the M night Shyamalan movie, the happening with, uh, with, with Mark Wahlberg, where it's like the plants are, this is actually maybe kind of, well, I don't know. Uh, but it's like the, the, um, the plants are, ex- are excreting some kind of like, silent pollen that's causing society to go nuts and and sort of uh kill itself and i don't know it's it, there's a virus aspect to it but um but i remember you telling me about it and i was like i gotta run out and get this book and um and yeah. i because okay i remember exactly why we said this this is um this was before this was when they had announced the 2008 crocs tour but before you were a part of it Right, and you said, "Let's use the secret, and let's make sure we get on this Crocs tour." <laughs> hey, and I was like, "All right, let me try this." And so I really did. Like the first thing I ran out, I bought. Um, I was like, "Well, I bought this like really expensive suitcase because <laughs> I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta get a suitcase because I'm going on this trip. So I'm just gonna go out right. and buy a suitcase." <laughs> and I just started acting like this thing's gonna happen. And, and it did, and it really, did, really did. It almost didn't. It almost <laughs> did, despite ridiculous odds. But I mean, it's it's legit, and I guess yeah. Uh, so in a, in a in a way, the secret is maybe just another way of saying faith, right? Yeah, sure. And it's Lienda, right? That's what Violent J talks about in Behind the Paint when 
they were, they were like, we're going to make ICP happen at any cost. We're in it. They're, the Yoda thing, do or do not, there is no try, right? Yeah. Like that's big part of the ICP's folklore. It's the whole thing about punk rock. It's like, you just do it. Hip hop, you create something from nothing. Yes. Pitch anything, relationships, anything. Like you have to have faith. And if it goes wrong, here's a se- here's another secret, Mike. You can't lose faith in the secret and you can't become a sour bitter, jaded person because it's that can happen. You can become just, you know, in the music industry, it's such a fun thing to talk crap about what bands aren't selling tickets and yeah. what flopped and like what the, what what's negative. I mean, you just have to sidestep that because that can be all encompassing. You know, I think the negativity that could make anyone not want to be in the music business. I mean, you I know you've been around that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that maybe people do that the most when they're feeling the most vulnerable about their own position and things. Totally. It's, uh, and I think one of the things that's always been great about you, you know, thinking about even warp tour and your interaction with other bands, like everybody was always just happy to see you, you know, you, you raised, uh, you just raised everybody's spirits when you came around. And so people, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, it shows you that, you know, cynicism doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. It's like, it's like a band aid on, something that really needs stitches, you know, it might make you feel better temporarily, but it's not healing you. Were you raised Christian? Have you always kind of had this or is it something you came to later in life? Well, that's a good question. I was raised Episcopalian, which is like the American version of the Anglican church. Right. Okay. Um, I, we, I, yeah, we would go every Sunday and then I, I was a acolyte and a crucifer in, um, middle school and high school. That's the person who carries the candles or carries the cross. Okay. I I would play guitar in the folk masses at our church in Carmel. And, um, you know, middle school stuff, maybe I kind of like questioned it. And of course you're always supposed to question it. I mean, one weird, this is another example of like randomness and like things being meant to be. I think you were with us on this tour with Whitey Cracker and MC Chris, like 2009. Yes. So John Rubin, was a rapper who's like a Christian rapper who was on actually Lars Attacks mm-hmm. who hadn't met met yet. And I was trying to get a hold of him and he didn't, ha- it was before Twitter and he didn't have social media. And I was like, I one day am going to work with this guy and this is going to happen. Like I said this a day or two before we got to the venue in Syracuse and the promoter was like, look, <laughs> I got, I got something for you. This yeah. guy left it, left it for you. And John Rubin had a poster. He left it because he saw we were coming and he wrote that. MC Lars, take me on tour. John Rubin. <laughs> I, I like, remember what? that. So we got the a- agent's email and then he and I became like really good friends. That yeah. was just me being like, I'm going to meet this guy. Oh, he was there. You remember that? And yes. Whitey Cracker was like, I have no idea who that is, but yeah. I was tripping. And I didn't yeah. know either, honestly, but, but it was, yeah. I mean, so what do you think then? Do you, are we on a path or are we choosing where we're going? I don't know. Like fate is what you make. I do. But I don't believe that everything's written down in a book because that would be boring. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have some agency. And that's the whole thing about the a free will and Genesis and, and Adam and Eve, right? Like you choose, you you make choices. But yeah. the universe doesn't revolve around you. Mm. And that um, that's actually a really good thing to, to know. Because yeah. then you can, then you're not so upset when like, if someone doesn't smile at you on the street, it doesn't mean that they don't like you. It just means maybe they're not thinking about you. Not everything is about you. And yes. I think- that that's an important lesson, you know? So what does that, how does that have to do with free will that like maybe things in hindsight, you can kind of see that things are faded, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I feel like right now, 
certainly right now, as we're sitting at home, those of us in the music industry who really have no idea when we're going to be working again and what capacity we're going to be working again. Uh, like I've had things happen recently that are so surprising and so out of left field that are allowing me to continue doing this even when there's no work and there's nothing going on. Like I can't help but think that somehow either divinely inspired or karmically inspired. I don't know what, but it's weird. It's like the things that the major things that have made left turns in my life, like even meeting you or finding out about you, like that was something I, I had no control over. Friendships, right? A friendship's not going to work unless the two people both see something in the other person that they appreciate and get and you meet them at meeting them at the right time in your life, right? That's yeah. why like friendships you make early on sometimes last longer because it's a con contextual thing. Like us meeting, we were both growing in our careers and like trying to figure stuff out. And we both realized, oh, this person has a similar perspective. So we had years of memories and that's, that's it's timing too, isn't it? And I love that you have talked about this stuff in your music too, that you've oh, yeah. thought about it, you know, it's so, okay. So this is, <laughs> so yesterday I was watching Disney plus on my iPad cause we've got nothing but time. Hey, I watched the first Simpsons Treehouse of Horror special. Oh, Bart, Bart as the Raven. Yes. And I was like, was that the start of it all for you for those connections? Uh, that and also there was a uh, there's a, a play, a Peanuts play, a Charlie Brown musical okay. that was at our, our high school. Like the high school we went to, the school we went to in Oakland was like really into the arts and theater and they did a great play of peanuts and there's a song where they're studying for a test and and it's, they sing, sing the song about edgar Allan poe they go edgar Allan poe as in poetry and, and i was like oh that's tight <laughs> that was like before the simpsons thing i remember that i thought that was awesome yeah and then i was really into like spooky stories and my mom got me a book of edgar Allan poe stories and um yeah and then and then i think i saw the simpsons thing but that was cool because it was like able to you know, that segment really stands out in the Halloween episode because it's so different, right? Yeah. It's so weird. And, I, and it, it's a little boring if you're a kid, but then later you go back and like, oh, this is pretty dope. This yeah. is interesting. Yeah. yeah. That was that was influential on me a lot, for sure. That <laughs> specific moment. When you were starting out, you were playing in punk bands, right? Yeah. I was doing, I was doing beats and stuff at home, and then I was learning guitar, and then I have friends come over and practice in the garage, and you know, our first show, seventh grade, we did a cover of Better Than Ezra's song, Good. Mm -hmm. but we made it about a fat person. We call it Rolls, about someone who's just <laughs> eating all day. So, like, stupid. But pretty clever, I guess. And we played that. And then I was doing original songs, and people weren't trying to hear the original songs. Then ska became a thing, and hardcore became a thing. So that band was called Horace. Uh. New, new guys we played a new year's festival and the singer was like, yeah. And then it was the millennium. He's like, I don't want to work on the millennium. I want to party. I'm not going to do a concert on the millennium. Uh, so I was like, so I was like, okay, well I'll start a new band. So then Amphoteric with Tim, who was one of the best men yes. at the wedding with you, we started that band and that was like a punk band. The drummer, Dan now plays guitar for Avril Lavigne and bass for Glassjaw. Oh, that's amazing. Drummer. So he, Dan, Dan, uh, Dan Ellis, Dan Ellis is his name. And so we played a few shows and then we, the members changed and then I left and that band kept going without me, but I would open for them sometimes doing the MC Lars thing, 
back oh, then I called okay. it MC Lars Horace. And it was a way to build my audience off of this small, small audience we built in Central California. But I learned about booking shows. I learned about promoting, like getting people to come, talking to people. Yeah. And you know, we didn't we didn't play a lot. And if that if that band had been bigger, I think it would be a more interesting story. But it's that taught me about the other thing it taught me is that it's annoying to have to like write songs by committee and organize rehearsals. But all, all the dudes in that band were uh, really hardworking and and great. I mean, for p- professional. But yeah, yeah, man. So that was that's kind of a long answer. But I I love I love that I could eventually make music on my own and then use this dovetail this project on the on Amphoterics, like local, whatever notoriety in, in that our friend, few friends knew about it, you know? Yeah. So, so in that sense, then in a way, like making beats and playing in bands really did seem like they happened at the exact same time. Yeah, they did. Because I, I it was like kind of, I did, there were not a lot of role models about how you could do it as a one person act. Right. And then, yeah. but then that's why hip hop is interesting. And that's around that time. That's when I discovered Paul Barman Okay. And Wesley Willis and Adam and his package. Yeah. And John John from King Missile, like uh, like CMJ. We had a radio station in our high school because it was like a really nice like resource we had. And then we'd go to this conference in New York at sixteen year olds and be like, just give allowed to run around New York and interview bands and go to shows. Yeah. And that's when I met I met the Paul Barman and John from King Missile and Wesley Willis and I interviewed them all for my radio show. And that's where Wesley Willis said the uh sample that's on true player for real oh. i get i gave him my cd and he said oh i'm gonna make an album called this gigantic robot kills and then like like two years after three years after he died he never made that record so yeah. but but the whole punk rock thing of being able to do it on your own was that was a realization and um when you know people are i learned that no one will be as committed to your music as you will be and so yeah. that's why being able to make music yourself and be the person who runs the project. If you're the one with the dominant energy, I quickly learned none of my friends were like as insanely dedicated to music. And I think the fact that I had friends who would cancel like Saturday morning rehearsals and stuff was like, okay, well, well, fine. Like I, I'm not going to cancel on myself. And yeah, nine inch, nine inch nails is a, and weird Al obviously were big influences, but I thought of speaking of the secret, I remember thinking one morning, how Trent Reznor had, I was waking up a Saturday. I remember this clearly how he'd made all these records pretty much on his own with like help from other engineers Mm -hmm. with his Mac, with his Mac, you know, back in the day. And I was like, I, I am going to, I I remember I said this in my head, I'm like, I'm going to do the similar thing with my computer and make a music career and make a living off of it one day. I don't know how, but I think I'm going to try to do it. I believe that I can. Trent Reznor did. And so I, I can't. And I remember I had that memory and, yeah, it's like if I imagine if my bandmates and my other bands had been like more dedicated or more like invested, you and I maybe would have never met. <laughs> yeah, right? well, well, it's interesting. First of all, just as an aside, I think you're the only person who has ever been like, well, you know, because of Nine Inch Nails and Weird Al. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two really, two, two talented dudes who had great vision and like yes. musical talent and made brands based on like the niche they occupied. Yes. Very different though, right? <laughs> pretty different yeah right (laughs) um so but that's an interesting that's an interesting point because i one of the things that i remember about you from the beginning was that you were not afraid to basically just pick up musicians from anywhere 
for a gig coming up. Like there was in the beginning, I mean, there was no consistent, there's never really been a consistent band. No, no it's not. And no. honestly, I feel like that's one of the things that has made you so special. And one of the things that I think because you got into like punk music and hip hop at the same time makes you so different than guys like me who just kind of came from a band background is that mm. you can sort of like, uh, chaotically jump into something that is unknown in a way that would make most people too uncomfortable. And you've got enough talent and you've got enough, like just run with itness that you kind of let that happen. Thanks Mike. You know what I thought? And what I realized that like has a lot of power is making a statement. No matter what that statement is, is more important than just trying to like copy what might sound good to the yes. ear. Like, Wesley Willis, he's he's not it's it's not necessarily typically good, but it makes a statement of like this is so different and weird yes. and inventive. Or Adam and his package, like wow, his singing is a little annoying, but like the fact that he's pulling it off, like the medium is the message, right? The yes. aesthetic, the aesthetics of what you create is more important than like than the finished project because like it's more important to make a statement. And I think being not afraid of being bad is okay because then you'll have the occasional good song. Like it took me so long, dude, to make anything that, that I think like I wouldn't still be proud of and, and realizing like what, you know, I'm not the best singer, but I have good rhythm. Yes. So realizing maximizing my strengths. So you only can do that by like making a lot of horrible music. I had, I put out like probably 10 CDRs of bad stuff that I don't think even <laughs> you've heard that like not funny, like covers, yeah. horrible attitude. I remember I did a cover of Bush's, glycerine oh yeah <laughs> so bad dude i think if anyone heard that i'd lose like half my fans like horrible but only by doing right like the ten thousand yeah. hours thing yes. only by doing tons of horrible flavor could you make that flavor work and <laughs> i think the other thing about collaboration is that it's always been whenever i've collaborated it worked because it's always been like well you're helping me with my project yes this is not our project yes you'll get publishing or you'll get royalties or i'll pay you for this session but as soon as anyone's been like this, like been a little too, uh, I don't know, precious or dominating or like try to show me ego or something, like I don't rehire them. And that's yeah. just something because I can't, I, I believe in myself too much to like give up more than I need to. And you've, you've witnessed that like with collaborators. Like, yeah. That's the business sense. And that's what I've learned about being a, being a, a good business person because um, you have to pay people, you have to make sure they feel happy, but you also have to let them know that like, they're helping you. And yes. if that gets lost and if, and if they're, t you know, people need to know their place. And when I've done guest verses, I never try to take commands of the project, but if someone wants me to do a guest verse and I don't want to do it, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'm, I don't like that concept. Like having belief in yourself is important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You want to be open to collaboration, but not forgetting that you're still at the end of the day, it's your name on this thing. So it is your yeah. thing and nobody else is going to be like, well, his collaborator really, really made that song suck. They're going to be like, no, that song sucks. And, it, <laughs> but you got to, you got to put your foot down and be like, no, this is exactly, this is what you, you, you have very good taste in picking. Well, I will say is in, in all the pickup bands that I saw you put together, you've always had incredibly interesting people want to work with you because I think they, they can feel this like adventure spirit of, uh, Thanks, Mike. So in 2000, what was it? Lest, lest, we, <laughs> lest we forget 
the tour after the Taco you, Bell tour. Yes, the Taco Bell tour. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened with that is that Joe from Patent Pending showed me if you write an essay for Taco Bell and apply for a grant, it's this thing called Feed the Beat, and you get coupons for five dollars. But we realize if you get buy something that's like five oh one, they had to give you change four ninety nine. Okay. So we figured out how to get change from the coupons and now they would do it where like you just get a card you swipe yeah but we were just all eating taco bell for so long five hundred dollars it was like we all gave so much weight it was so right (laughs) well i i remember i was i I only was on a couple shows for that but i met you guys in wilkes-barre um and and we like went to like an applebee's or something and everyone's like oh thank god we are not going to taco bell today I mean, I was feeding them for free, but like it was not much. It was like, yeah, Taco Bell, dude. It's so gross. I can't even. Ugh. They have good vegan vegan stuff, but also like, ugh. Please. <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> Roos, we're having fun. We're laughing. We are having fun. So, one of the things that I think has about you that I think is really unique, and and it ties into this fearless nature of yours is that unlike a lot of us that really belabor things or overdo them, you seem to be able to, to kind of work very quickly and then like kind of catch the, the initial spark and then move on to the next thing. Right. Which, which, so we, we, I know we didn't talk about this last time, but there was a day we spent in Philadelphia in maybe 2007 Mm-hmm. Where we went to the um, to the Franklin Institute and we were tooling around, and then we went uh, that night and we went at our hotel room. We wrote the music for Bruce Campbell. So I had this like little guitar thing that I had recorded first, and then we were in this hotel room. We had like some kind of MIDI keyboard, and you were like, "Watch this," and you wrote the beat for the song in like five minutes. You were like, "Just watch this. I think you're gonna like it." And then we like hummed a keyboard part and just played it. And then I was like, okay, you should play something on guitar. And you said like, I'm just going to hit record and just play the first thing you think of, which is like the last thing I would have ever done left on my own devices. But, and the funny thing is then we used the thing that you just said, we'll just go for it, you know? And that was fascinating to me that you could just, just do something so spontaneously. And that's the thing I I find like when you're a good player and a good rapper or whatever, the first take, the first and second take are typically the best because after that, you're going to rethink mm-hmm. it. You're not going to have the magic. Like, for example, like what's an example of that on where you've been Lars, the first track on robot kills. That's the first take. And I just did it on a mic in my oh. studio and I retried it a million times, but there's something about that Zen mind first mm-hmm. thing. And you kind of know, right? It's, have you ever heard of a band called the klf oh yeah man dude i love the white room was like one of my favorite tapes when i was a kid does that have the doctor who the tardis it's like a remix of that gary glitter okay that you know that song so they did a version it's like doctor who hey the tardis <laughs> doctor who and it's like early nerdcore thing but it's like 70s yeah. anyway you should read this mike and anyone listening it's called the manual okay. and my friend rob who's a producer uh scientist from who lives in Monterey who's a friend of Whitey Cracker told me about this book. He basically talks about having the ability to like not be precious and 
have the instinct to like have a bird's eye view and know when the gems are good in what you create and know when to like when they're not mm. and like writing a lot and then just put everything on the wall then come back and like what Bukowski said you don't know if anything's good until you record it and write it Bukowski in his case you write it and then you come back two weeks mm. to check it out and I think that was what's you know Tom my first manager like one of the things he taught me was 21 Concepts, the song is kind of about this. You just mm. write and write and create. And you know instantly if something's good. You know instantly if something's mm. okay. And you know instantly if something's mm. bad. But instead of like trying to make something bad good, he had this metaphor where like if, you know, in war, like if your friend is hurt and there's bombs going off around you, you have to know when to leave your friend on the battlefield because you're going to die too. <laughs> like you have to know, like that's kind of maybe trivializing a war yeah. story, but like to know when a song is not going to be, it's not salvageable. Yeah. You work on to the next, next thing. And that's, that's important, man. That's something I learned. And the only way you can do that and be, be so flexible is to know how to work logic and Ableton and, and know how to work the programs. Cause then you're not running up the bill trying to like a million yeah. ideas. Like I knew, I knew that riff was special and cool. And I knew the idea of like a metal song about cannibalism and <laughs> zombies would fit because, because it had like a horrorcore ICP yeah. kind of vibe. And you know, it, it only two things work with music. The music has to match the feeling of your thesis of your chorus and like has to evoke emotional connections, whether it's a pop culture thing or like a personal yeah. thing, or it has to be the exact opposite. Like you could have a really sad beat and do something like really happy lyrics about bunnies yeah. or something with a sad beat. That's funny. Or like a really happy beat where you're talking about the COVID-19 yeah. or something. Like maybe not right now you yeah. would release that. <laughs> <laughs> but but only but 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 you can't have like a kind of happy beat and like a kind of sad lyrics. No, it has to be extreme for it yeah. to work in my experience. Yeah, it's like that right? they might be giants. I mean, method. I guess. Yeah, like happy happy music and like when you actually read that, you might even be singing along to the chorus and not thinking about it. And when you read the lyrics on paper with no music, you're like, this is horrific. Yeah, they are great lyricists. Well, maybe it's time we talked about the carnival in the room. Yes. ICP, you love them, I love them. Why do you, or when did you start to love them? You know, I used to love the Jerky Boys. I still do. Mm -hmm. And I had this this website where I'd review prank calls. Okay. And I had this rare Jerky Boys tape that had a few calls on it that were like really foul, mm -hmm. inappropriate, and like really like they, they not commercial. So I had a website. I used my mom's like twenty megabyte web space mm -hmm. on her um, Santa Cruz .net slash tilde k Nielsen <laughs> slash prank call .html. I learned how to code when I was like twelve. Yeah. And. No, there weren't a lot of prank call websites about like reviewing tapes or like about fan pages for the Jerky Boys. So my site ended up in this, you know, back in the day, I don't remember yeah. if you remember this, but they used to have like web directories, like the yellow pages you could buy. Okay. And, okay. and, and I remember I, this was like so cool. Like this web, this book about websites had a section on mischievous fun and my site was there as like the recommended best prank call page. I remember I went oh. went to the bookstore at the mall as a 12-year-old and there's my website <laughs> in this book. That's awesome. And I was like, oh, something I did on the computer in my in my, my mom's office is, you know, she wasn't really happy because she'd get emails and stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I would trade prank call tapes and this dude in Michigan, Chris Van Horn, who had been a roadie for ICP, he later joined the army. He was a DJ. He was like a year older than me. He made prank calls too. And he'd, he'd send me tapes, but then at the end, he'd put uh, uh, music, you know, because it's 90 minutes. Not every prank call tape was 90 minutes. Some were. Yeah. But there was, I don't know if you remember the song Super, Super B-A-L-L-S. 
100%. And there's that prank call at the beginning where he goes, I'm only make mu- oh. music. That's from a tape called Neil uh, Great Phone Calls. And you know who the voice is? This is going to blow your mind. This is going to flip your Ew. wig back. It's Mike Patton doing that prank. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> Mike Patton put out Neil Hamburger's prank call record, Great Phone Calls, which I have on vinyl, which is so funny. Um, it's so good. But Mike Patton and Neil Hamburger made a prank call record. So Chris was like, I recognize this. He would leave little audio messages for me on the tape. And he goes, you know, I yeah. reckon I recognize this voice. And I thought it was from this. Then he played the ICP song. So anyway, so this was before Malenko. And then he would send me their songs and he sent me the mutilation mix. And like, I'd send him like $20 in an envelope. And then he'd mail me. I remember he sent me um, Ringmaster. And it was like, you couldn't find that in the malls in Monterey in 1995, you know? Yeah. But yeah. but 97, sure, when the MTV thing happened in um, yeah. Disney. So I got really into it because I, you know, I felt like it was an underground Midwest thing. Like people in ca- California didn't really know ICP is that well. I was really into underground music. I liked rap, but it was like, I liked the stories. Junior year, we went to see them. And it was just like, wow, a hip hop show can be this like over the top, theatrical, fun and bad in that like they can't couldn't really sing, but they could rap. Yeah. <laughs> and and I liked. Yeah. And, and that it was funny. And it became I felt like this underground thing. And then. I don't know the whole thing about the six jokers card and the wraith and then getting to play the gathering and meet those guys and and meeting with people who are juggalos, too, like you, my, my one of my best friends, DJ. Like that, yeah. But I liked ICP, and I still do, because of their ability to be smart with their business, their love of mm. of hip hop, and their ability to motivate and tell a story. And I know that Juggalos get a bad reputation, and like the whole magnets thing, haha. Shaggy's not a PhD physicist. We get it, hilarious. <laughs> but like that's so played out, right? The whole thing about yeah. making fun of Juggalos is just a way to make fun of poor white people, and yes. They were different and they weren't afraid to be different and they were smart and they, they hit at the right moment. Like Weird Al, like he's genius, but like what made him a legend was that he was able to parody videos at a time when that was a new art form and yeah. he got permission from Michael Jackson and MTV needed content. It was yeah. his brilliance interacted with the timing. Same with MC Chris, great rapper, funny guy, like yeah. good writer, but um, Aqua Teen and that gave him his his platform. Friend a lot, yeah. uh, Penny Arcade, you know, gave him his platform. Yeah. Like, I'm very interested in about why things happen in the way they do. God, that was a long answer. I was watching the um, Netflix just put out the Mark Twain Prize uh, award ceremony for Dave Chappelle. Besides doing clips of him doing stand up, and there's a moment when he uses a quote from Robin Williams that says that one of the things about stand up that's so special about it is it's like one of the few art forms where you can use everything you know in it. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about you is that you found a way really from, maybe not from day one, but from day like I became aware of you, um, you use everything you know. I, I honestly don't think I ever saw a performer in a musical context use the video screens with videos that they had all put together themselves to sync along with all the songs. I mean, where did that come from? I, I, I really don't remember anybody else doing that before you. Oh yeah. And it was a huge pain in the ass to do back then too. It was not easy. Or this, like that show we played in uh, what the, the graduate show Mercury lounge, like the Christmas show. 
we had yeah. to rent the screens and then and then it was too close to the light and it burned it so <laughs> yeah, i had to pay an extra three hundred dollars like um i saw this guy tim fight do it once at a show when i first well yeah when i first came to new york in okay. in the beginning of 2006 and uh that was a magical time man because early 2006 like i was just out of college and I was renting a room in Williamsburg for $400 with a porch like that would be <laughs> two roommates. But like it was such a yeah. that was crazy. You you were at that apartment, I think. Oh, probably. oh, yeah. yeah, The one with the rooftop deck. So Frank Boren, who directed Download the Song, his brother was a New York guy who would like go to a lot of shows. And we started hanging out and he took me to see Tim Fight, who was a rapper in a group called Little T and One Track Mike. I don't know if you they were on uh, Atlantic. They had a song called Shanika Don't Live Here No Mo." Shaniqua don't do you know that about this guy who moves in and this woman who used to live there named Shaniqua, he has her landline and everyone calls for her and it's it's like a novelty song but it, it was dope yeah. like he, he their record um was called Fome is Dape Fame is dope right like a flip yeah. on that and I loved that in college and um Tim Fight went solo he had a show where he produced he was rapping or singing but behind him he just had his art or pictures projecting randomly and i'd seen yeah. like weird al and people with like big huge video setups but i was like oh you know back then it was kind of rudimentary but like if you get a vga projector mm -hmm. the trick was going to be syncing it with the material with the yeah. music and then so then i what i do is i'd go on imovie and make a dv burn a dvd of the entire set which was okay. less likely to shake so we just run the whole set from a dvd player the mono would go to the house and then the click track would go to the drummer. And it was like, it was fun because uh, it gave something extra, but man, what a pain. And like some venues, it didn't work. And I would stop doing it. But then we brought it back for the MC Chris 2011 tour, with two screens and the full band. Yeah. And like, you know, if you do it well, it's dope. And now it's easier to like do screens. I haven't done a screen in a while, but um, yeah, that was like, just like, how do we make, how do you make just rapping along to a laptop somehow interesting? Because I'm not winning yeah. any, I'm not winning any eight mile rap battles, you know. It's not yeah. like the songs were like pop hits, really, other than like some small radio play. So how do we get this to be an interesting, like, element? And yeah, yeah. So that was the videos. I think started at that show, and then they kept going on and off for a while. And um, yeah, I'll, if one day, if like if this gets to the point where. We can. I want to do videos again because I think the trick is not just playing the music video, but showing like yes. a visual interpretation of it. That makes yeah. it. That's that's the key. And you would add in your own little drawings to it, and you would put clips of lyrics. And you know, especially at that time, when I was helping to produce a lot of live rap shows. Right. The one thing that I noticed with most live rap shows was that a lot of times the venue sound is not great. Right. Sometimes people are rapping really fast. If you didn't already know the song, you, if you saw a group for the first time, you would have no idea what they were talking about. You would have no clue what the song was about. Maybe you'd glean something from the chorus, but you would miss all the verses. But when you, with the first, what I knew was anytime anybody saw you for the first time with the screens, they knew what every single song was about. There was like an audio visual presentation together. So yeah. they would get video of it. They would see clips of the lyrics at times you would sing along. They would see that. And it, it just let, it let everybody get it right away. Yeah. And I think that was really, really, uh, that was super ahead of its time. Thanks, Mike. Did we do that? We did that on the Crocs tour, didn't we? 2008. Yes. 
Yeah. Did we do it when we opened for Nas? Probably not. We were just in and out, right? No, we had video for Nas. <laughs> okay. Well, shoot. That worked great. And then... Um, <laughs> well, just because they can understand it doesn't mean they're going to like it. Have you seen Have you seen Fast and the Furious? Um, a long time ago. You know how they have these buttons that make the cars go fast? It's Nas and NOS. <laughs> yeah. Our Nas button puts us in reverse. It does. <laughs> and it gets us off that stage fast. Uh, <laughs> I've never looked into a, I've never looked out at 2,500 people and been like, wow, they all hate this. <laughs> well, the thing was, then we brought out Fred a lot and that's when everyone like lost it. Like they hated it, but they wanted us off. But then Nas was on, wasn't on for two more hours. That's so right. like, what do you want? Just nothing? Just to stand there, you jokers? Well, and if, and if we hadn't been there, because the production company had brought the wrong turntable and Nas said that they couldn't perform because they didn't have the right turntable. But earlier that day, I had left my guitar at the hotel lobby after the uh, Lilac Festival in Rochester. So when I got to Connecticut, I had to find a, um, a backline company that I could rent a guitar from for the day which they let me do. And then it was being able to call that guy and be like, Hey, do you have any turntables? Wow. It's the only reason Nas ever played that show. So he wouldn't have performed. He wouldn't have performed otherwise. So we did save the show. We, we, we took one for the team as it were. <laughs> and Nas definitely never realized that, but that is 100% the only reason that show ever happened. Wow. Um, uh, but it's like, come on, man. Just, yeah, Nas, just, he's a, he, that's a guy who doesn't need a lot of production. I remember it was just him and his DJ, but that those records are so classic. I mean, you get to a yeah. point, but then like Eminem, for example, you know, he has a huge band, great production, like a full band. Dre, when he plays, I mean, Jay-Z, I guess it depends on, I guess if Nas, if it were like, a, if you were making 30, 40 or 100 grand, he would have a band. Uh, he was making a lot of money and he didn't care about having a band. Uh, <laughs> Nas is one of those guys who's like a legend, but it's because Illmatic is such a great record and he's yeah. had a few other great records, but like timing, talk about timing. He's a great writer though. He's more of a yeah. writer than a showman. I don't know. Yeah, well, and it's, 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 a, it's something that I think a lot of musicians who are lucky enough to have a long career face, which is how do you face your own legacy? How do you... If you've put out an album that everybody thinks is classic, how do you top it? Do you top it? Do you try? Axel Rose. You know who didn't do that was ICP. I mean, the fact that they did the second deck. Like, yes. Like, the Calm and maybe the Tempest aren't their strongest, like, between the decks. They could have let Malenko define them. And they kind of do those nostalgic, like, anniversary tours. But, yeah. you know, they didn't. They could have peaked, and they didn't. I mean, I guess maybe they peaked in terms of, like, get attendance at the gathering. But in terms of, like, their creative influence and their connection to their fans yeah they never stopped and i think i look to that model for sure like that's important you know yeah yeah i mean it's and i guess that's you know that's one of the things that proves artists who aren't gimmicks it's like it's easy to just say like icp is a gimmick it's easy to say well doing pop culture songs is a gimmick but is av as you get older and as you have more experiences if you're able to translate that into the art that you're making then you're moving beyond all those things, you know, and you really have a point of view. And I think that what's so cool about you is that, you know, you can draw these cool little cartoons. You have these great rapping ideas. You're interested in literature and learning and all. And it's like, you have a way to put forth kind of it, like the, the Dave Chappelle, the, um, the Robin Williams quote, like you are using kind of everything that is you 
comes out in any one of the outlets that you do. If you draw a comic, that's definitely you. If you, if you make a song, it's like, it's automatically, everybody knows the moment they hear something, if it's yours, which is a really hard thing to accomplish. Thanks, Mike. I think that is, that is hard. And, and that becomes, that becomes like not just being a rapper who showed up at the studio and was given a chorus and the beat. Right. And that, yeah. when that happens, I think it's hard to sustain it or having, I don't know. I th- I think about that like success, how that can hurt people, but also it can like Weedus having a have an iconic song has given them the license to do weird, very uncommercial, strange self produced records for the past fifteen years and make a yeah. still make money off that. So, um, which is dope. So yeah, being able to be being able to be consistent, but also make take chances is a really important balance. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's something that you still do. And I think that your attitude of just make a lot of stuff and then weed out what's good or not later is one of the things that's going to help you continue on that path because you're not unlike me or a lot of musicians who can just sit around and it takes so long to even like, Oh, I'll start, but first I got to do this. And first I got to this and I can't start a song cause I don't have a riff or I don't have, you know, it's like, the ability to just jump into something and let it form as it moves along is not a skill that everybody has. Um, and I think it's one of the things that's going to, it's going to keep you going forever. You know, as long as you want to do this, you're going to be able to do it. Uh, I I appreciate that. And I also think it's interesting how, you know, I wasn't ever huge really on YouTube. Like my biggest videos were posted through my old management company or like some that, that happened at like flow, like Poe get, you know, a few hundred thousand views, but I never was like a YouTuber like Mac yeah. Lethal, who used that as a channel. And I think for a minute, that was kind of frustrating to like try to get more YouTube views. But I realized that YouTube kind of changed. And now Spotify has become like the, like a really a more powerful destination for getting new fans. And Spotify, yeah. if you put out enough stuff, the, al- the algorithms and the fans let you know which your best songs are, which is kind of cool. Like you just yeah. put out enough that, it's okay. Put out put out four records in a year. The best three songs will be in your top ten, and that's the one people will hear. And so, it's not like you. It used to be you had to please someone who would like then have a relationship at iTunes and this and that, or like do the right freestyle rap about pancakes over a Chris Brown beat like Mac Lethal did to like yeah to be able to not have to be on a rhyme sayers. Like you always had to please so many people, and now all you have to do is like make stuff that's good enough for you and make a lot yeah. of it. And thank goodness for stuff like Patreon because it it obviates some of the financial pressure. And I think I've been really lucky with like how how my workflow has been um, buoyed like like a boat like a buoy buoyed by the changing in new media economics and how um, yeah the fans have always found what I'm doing and I really I I can't believe how lucky that is and how fortunate that is and how grateful I am and. I really give as much time as I can to them all the time. And I think you really have to be good to your fans and you can't ever expect them to be there because they have no reason to support you. It's a miracle yeah. that one person cares about your stupid music, you know, like yeah. nev- you're never better than them and you exist for yourself and for their enjoyment. And any, a pe- if you make a penny from investing a hundred grand into your own music, you are like fortunate. So quit whining and quit like, you know, that's my theory. Like, don't be negative. You know, some artists yeah. get negative if they see a their draw decrease. Yeah. But guess what? You're lucky that even 50 people want to see you. So 
Anyway, yeah. that's a tangent. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think that Patreon's kind of a cool. Um, I mean, you're self motivated in a way that I think a lot of artists are not, and I feel like I don't know this for sure, but this is why I'll ask. So, what is your like? What is your day? Do you actually structure what you're going to do each day? Does it change by day, or do you have kind of a routine? That's a good question. I try to exercise every morning. Like today, I ran four miles. Holler. Running a mile, running a mile in 11 minutes. I used to take me 13, 14 minutes to run a mile. So congratulations. Thank you. So I try to exercise. (laughs) I come at home and do my, like, I have a seven minute Apple watch workout of like pushups and stuff, which is cool. Mm -hmm. I recommend that app. And then, you know, the first thing I got to do is like today where I was working on some, 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 uh, story ideas for a project I'm doing. I got to do that in the first few hours because by noon, it's going to be ordering contact lenses, health insurance, to, you know, paying bills, social media. I there's a, the magic like two or three hours where like my brain is the best, you know. Yeah. So by between nine and noon, and then I eat lunch and do business stuff, and then in the afternoon is when I perfect stuff or edit podcasts, or I've been doing like my streaming freestyle stuff or YouTube the hatchet chats. So. But I have to do my creating early because, yeah, it, at night it's like you second guess things and you're not as good. So, yeah. How about you? When do you like to write music, or do you have a system for that? I, well, I like to write music whenever somebody else is around, which is rare to never these days. But my creative time was always really late at night. But I think for the same reason that you are thinking early in the morning, which is like there's no distraction. Certainly in the music business, no one's trying to get a hold of you at eight o'clock in the morning. That's true. <laughs> so it's like it's an it's it's a good undisturbed time when you're feeling fresh and i think that it's really smart that you get up and exercise first because then your blood's going you're like you're probably firing on all cylinders in that way you know yeah and and i think that like then it's not in your head oh i need to exercise today because suddenly it becomes six o'clock and you're like oh i'll do it tomorrow you know yeah i uh it's important and um during the quarantine like we've been fortunate enough that there's a area where I can run. I think if yeah. I, if we are still in Brooklyn, you know, I'd be going crazy. Yeah. I'd, I'd be tripping. Yeah. So I think it's hard to do, but, um, you know, I go to sleep early. I'm one of those guys who tries to be in bed by 10 or 11 every uh, night, even when I'm home. And cause that way I can get up at six. And I think yeah. that's just my, I'm an early, I'm a morning guy. And I know a lot of people aren't. And I know like on tour morning becomes one or 2 PM. And that's always been hard. Cause you don't get to the hotel by 6 AM, 5 AM. That's when you eat your like giant cheeseburgers meal. Like yeah. it's late. Like it's just so I like being home and like I, uh, yeah, it's hard to write on the road unless no, it's hard to write on the road. I never really have written anything yeah. great other than maybe the Bruce Campbell thing, but that was just, I can produce beats and collaborate, yeah. but I can't write lyrics. Yeah. When I, I don't know if you remember when I was trying to do a, the book proposal on the MC Chris tour, like. That's just right. A, it's hard, man. And that, that book never got bought and it was a good um, experience. But yeah, I like being home because I can work on creative projects. My whole focus is my whole thing is like figuring out what to f- prioritize. So I prioritize, prioritize the podcast and mm-hmm. the Patreon. And yeah. um, that's really what takes up most of my time. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of so once I did. And once I get those out of the way, then I. Um, try to do other projects and stuff, but that takes yeah. up most of my time, which is cool. It's my job. I love it. Yeah. And it leaves your evenings free to just live a life and 
enjoy time with Ash or, or do whatever, you know, yeah, which man. is good too. It's, you know, it's, it, I know deep down that the way you're doing it is the right way to do it. And it, and I just kick myself because I, I'm not a morning person, but I just every, like so many successful people, that is their story is getting up early. And it's like, Oh God, I know it's right, but I just don't want to do it. You know, it helps. <laughs> no, it was a huge tree. It's just when you're not drinking, you're like energy yeah. in the morning and drinking can like give you energy and you stay up late and it's fine when you're 20. Yeah. But when you wake up and you're 34, you know, it's like, or anything else that's like that you medicate to calm yourself down with sh- eating tons of sugar. You know me. I used yes. to love sh- Red Bull and Mountain Dew and burritos yeah. and like, okay, fine, that's fine. But then you're then you're not going to be as sharp the next day. So that yeah. is important. Or not eating meat and stuff like I, I I wouldn't say that it's whatever. Like meat's fine, I guess, if people want to eat it. But like being careful about why you consume the things you do. Is it to make yourself feel calm and take away sadness? Or is it a way to um, sustain yourself? And uh, yeah, yeah, man, that's what's up. Yeah, yeah. Why do we do anything? Right? Is is yeah. are any of our actions are they masking uh, something we're insecure about, or are they actually propelling us forward? And it takes some real self reflection to figure that out. So the past few years, I started seeing a therapist every week. Mm. And um, he taught me more about like how to be in touch with my emotions and how to be able to communicate your needs to your friends, the people you love, and making sure that they have to consent to agreeing that you're it's okay for you to share how you feel. That's the mature thing, to be able to express your emotions and not feel bad about having boundaries. That's important. I think I've yeah. been bad about that because I always wanted to like make everyone, joy- going back to the joyful smiles thing, yeah. make everyone happy. And I think that came from like, realizing that like as a kid you know if you make your family laugh or entertain them or like do well academically was another thing for me that everything's fine and you and that that kind of gets like rid of any drama or stress that can mask things if you're not honest you know yeah there's there's always a reckoning at some point and if it goes on too long that reckoning can be pretty uh pretty substantial i think men especially in their 30s and 40s it's a common thing to like bottle up emotions and i think it's important to be able to express that and uh yeah so that's you know that's why music's important especially as you get older to write to listen to because uh it's hard life is not easy it's friends like you that that inspire me to keep taking chances and we can also talk to each other and support each other through this stuff yeah man that's music is the most special thing about music to me is the people it's brought me in my life and um it's allowed allowed me to create a life that i on my own terms. And I think that's like a huge blessing and have people who I love who like, you know, everyone at the wedding basically was there because they're close friends through music industry, at least on my side or, or through some capacity of that. And, um, that is more important than like, I'd rather have that than like, than millions of dollars. I'm happy with what I have and I'm happy with the people in my life. And I think success can, I don't know, huge success can be hard on people. And I'm glad that like I've had enough little success to keep my f- real friends and keep going. Yeah. That's all I ever wanted. And that's tight. That is, man. It's amazing. It's I, the same way, man. Music's brought me almost every important person in my life who I didn't grow up with. You know what I mean? Like it's, Joe it's, Oliger. Like Joe Oliger. Like Rob Piccinini Jr. Like JTL. <laughs> um, Dave, David mean, Bromberg. That's right. I mean, it's everybody. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I think that certainly in a time when social media 
so many people put forth images of themselves that are not necessarily accurate to make themselves feel better. Or you walk outside, you won't walk outside the house unless you're dressed a certain way because you don't want people to see you maybe more normal. And I think it's, this is a time when I really cherish the friends that you can be open and honest around and not have to worry about, like, it's, you know, it's okay for me to sound like a jackass to you. It's okay for me to be wrong about something. I don't have to worry that one thing is going to suddenly crash the whole friendship. It's like, there's a freedom of that, that then allows us to talk in a way that, you know, sacred. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can then really get to stuff that matters. I think some of the first relationships I made in the music industry were with people who like, I felt like if I did the wrong thing, the whole castle would crumble. That was yes. always on. And that was because the gatekeepers had more power in 2004, three, like they did. You really needed yeah. people to open doors for you. And it was my whole career has been about finding the people who are truly my friends who like will be there no matter what. Eva is a great example. My manager, like she's so like, I don't know if it's being a woman, she's being, she's nurturing and she's loyal and wonderful. But like, I, I never worry that like, I'm going to put out the wrong song and she's going to email me and say, yeah, we're done. I can't book yeah. you any more tours or like you, like, oh, that last Marvel song sucks. Sorry, bro- brother. Like that was scary. That's scary when like your creative output, all your friendship and everything is resting on that. And that's not enviable. And I know young artists might like be worried about that, but I also think yeah. maybe with social media, they do have more power. You know, it's like you, you can bounce from place to place very quickly. You'll be able to do traditional media stuff. Fine. You know, it's all the same people are all still working. So I think yeah. that there's a lot to be learned from what it means to stick around for a while. Well, you know what it is? It's being able to have fans that like don't care about the platform, but care about you. That's yes. the defining thing. And like, um, uh, yeah, it's true. It's true. And as YouTube changes and everything changes, I mean, it's like, it can be great to have something go viral, but you have to be able to have something that exists beyond that. And I think that comes down to the touring Yes. Having a live show and having people feel like it's part of a community and that they like want to go see you. That's really the defining thing. I was so pleased and blown away by how many people came to see us on the February tour. And thank, yeah. God, thank God it was before all the Corona stuff because yeah. I, I think people are going to be scared to go to shows for a bit. But it, it gave me a representation like, oh, if you package this right and go out with the right other acts, it's a thing that exists beyond these mercurial platforms. And that, as much as like I've had beef or like, Frustration with Nerdcore is like the most amazing thing about what Front A Lot helped to brand is this culture of people and this weird subsection of hip hop that's not corporate, that's not whatever. It's just old men who put out rap songs about yeah. about computers from yeah. 20 years ago that like, that's that's cool that enough people care about that. And now it's become young people, people of color, like people of different genders, non, non-binary people. Like that's dope. Like that is so yeah. dope. And so, yeah, yeah. It's like DJs, DJ now is like, does um, investment consulting for an accounting work. And he talks about, oh. you want to diversify your portfolio. You don't want all your stock in Facebook. It's that's like a good point. Like, Oh, you don't want all your audience to be on Instagram. You know, I think being like a designer and knowing what's funny and like doing parody art and like stealing all sorts of intellectual property and, <laughs> all that stuff like that's that's having edgy weird merch is so important and so like yeah that dead milkman the cow with the eyes crossed out like that yeah is, that's legendary like you want to have those visual things and or the nirvana face you know like 
That's yeah. important. That's so important. And um, yeah, and if you do those things, it doesn't matter what new media platform you're using. If you have a point of view and and again, you're using everything you know in your merch, you're using everything you know. It's like <clears throat> everything that you put out has uh, has an aesthetic that's yours. And it's not just the music. Although I agree with the, I definitely agree with the music theory thing. And as much as whether you you know traditional theory or not, it's just if you take the time to identify what sounds in your head you like and you just find whatever process allows you to make whatever sounds in your head you like become a thing, whether that's like learning what the chords are or learning how to manipulate logic or learning whatever, just to be able to make the sounds you hear real. Or to communicate to someone you trust who who will read at a reasonable rate or because they love you, help you, yes. help you learn that. I mean, if you're a rapper, learn how to produce. Like that is the only advice. If you're if you're a rapper who's like struggling with your career or trying to get started, spend a week learning logic. Like I know, Mike, you asked me, like, how do you make beats? Yeah. And I was like sending you resources. And that's important. You have to have that curiosity. I love hearing how you structure your day. I really do. I think that's oh, yeah. so important. And I love hearing how you arrived at you know, the idea of pursuing hip hop because sometimes dealing with a band is just a pain in the ass, which is like right. a universal truth. Um, and how somebody needs to be steering the ship and somebody needs to, you need to have the overall taste maker and you need to, and, and if you're in that band, you need to be able to trust the overall sure. taste maker. And uh, I just, I, I think that that's the thing that is, that has come through. One of the things I always realized when I would write my own stuff versus when I would work on stuff with you is like, you were just always generating initial ideas that were just cooler, just more interesting than things I would come up with on my own. And it was like, why, why can't I think of those things? And it's like, oh, that's because mm. this is you. Like the things that make Andrew, Andrew, like nobody else can do you except you. And that's, it's, it's, I think it's cool that when you are able to, and I think a lot of artists could, could benefit from the self-reflection of this. I'm also sort of, embarrassed to say that this has a lot of parallels uh, with Project Runway that we've been watching. Being a designer is so much about your brand and your confidence in yourself. I mean, Violent J. That's huge, right? That's I, like, I think so too. I mean, he even says in his book, he's like, look, I'm like a ninth grade dropout. Do you think I could come up with the idea of the carnival and all these Joker's cards and all this stuff on my own? He's like, you know, you have to, and you see artists in almost every medium the really great ones seem to say the same thing. And I think that that is internally humbling if you let it be. And I think that's the biggest under that's the biggest reckoning with ego is realizing like the great idea you had, you didn't actually necessarily create. You just happened to be there to catch it. It's the big, it's about the bigger picture. And, and when I, when I do die, I want people to like, be like, wow, <laughs> like that person inspired a lot of people to to find their own true self and be comfortable with who they are. That's all I want yes. because it's my whole journey has been about loving myself and being comfortable with myself and that's all I have ever wanted and 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 expressing myself in a fun way and finding joy and like genuine joy in like this gift of being alive and that's all I ever want people to like to be able to be inspired to consume less and create more. That's something I always talk about and I have that Jellaby offer quote I try to put in all my albums that he mm -hmm. had in his spoken word album, No More Cocoons. He says, uh, anyone could have made this record, uh, now go do your own. I've put that yeah. in every every lyric book I, I quote Jellaby offer. So 
Go make your own podcast. Go make your own whatever because the world wants your weird, maybe stupid idea. And if you make enough of them, maybe you'll reach enough people for them to do their own version of that. And then we can smash the patriarchy and destroy capitalism. The thing that makes the biggest impact is living as an example of something. And I think you are an example of what you preach. The best example of what you think an artist should do is by just looking at what you're doing. You're putting out two songs a month. You're, you're keeping prolific. You're, you're pursuing the things that you're interested in. You're keeping in good touch with your fans. You're like, it's funny, you know, people kind of are hoping that there's this secret resource book to understand like how to crack the code. But all you have to do is look at the people that you love or look at the people that you respect. The example of what they're doing is the secret. Like that is the code. If you really believe in that stuff, show it by being a good, humble, patient person, you know? Yes. I mean, exactly. no one has the answers and that's kind of what makes life fun. And anyone who thinks they do is full of crap and they're trying to sell you something. It's called a confidence game, right? Well, yeah, exactly, man. I mean, we, we get, we get something out of this whole thing. It's, it's amazing to me when I think about how much of my life has been influenced by meeting you and spending time around you, even when stretches of time have gone by when when there's there's been a break in something you know it's a crazy what do you think was the worst show we ever played together there do you remember the time we played at this weird little bar in philadelphia uh we were on with these bands who definitely were not they were like would have been like lilith fair bands or something at the time it was like if we had played with ani defranco and Ani DeFranco's crowd was there. And then we got up there and we're like, hey, here we go. You know, nobody wanted to see us. I just remember like all the bands were like these really like strong feminist bands. And then it's like, here's a bunch of dudes coming up here and rapping about whatever. I mean, nobody, nobody cared. But I think we, st- but at the same time, after that, we, we went and I saw one of the most quintessential Lars moments that I ever remember. We went out to a bar afterwards and you got up in, and we were in like a, a fairly hardcore section of Philadelphia and you just got up and you played, play that funky music white boy on the jukebox and just started dancing in the middle of the room. I was just like, who has the guts to do that? It was like young jocks birthday party. It was just like, who has the all to do this it was amazing we survived <laughs> oh boy the fun the one thing we were always good at was making it fun even when it wasn't fun those those moments you know i heard somebody say something the other day uh that was like it was actually ozzy osbourne who said it. he's like you know the most fun you'll ever have in a band is when you're just getting started and everything's new and everything's exciting and then the moment everybody starts making money and the moment you start having the expectations that they all kind of fall apart and there are ways to navigate it, but I understand what he's saying. Like those early days when we were just doing it, it was so much fun. It was so novel. It just was like, it, it, it was, you know, you roll up to, you know, ground zero in Spartanburg and you're like, why not? You know what I mean? Like, let's, but it's, it's like, how do you keep that energy? Like, I feel like that's a, that's a key energy to be able to, to remember, like, you know, at a certain point it can become your job. I mean, this is our job. Right. But but you can't lose the, the, the fun of it before it's your job. Well, and I think most people do lose the fun, and that's why it probably it's safe to say most bands that are formed don't last more than a few years. And yeah. uh, you always said something like, you do it even if you weren't making money. You do it because you yes. have to. And I think Absolutely. that's been my thing. And uh, 
Let's end with Bruce Campbell. This okay. was the first thing I did with Schaefer. It was with this guy, Zealous One, who's a former nerdcore dude. And it was with Whitey Cracker. It was on the uh, Dewey Decibel. I'm sorry. It was on the Digital Gangster album. And it was the yeah. first song I think we did for Digital Gangster. Yeah. And then and then, and then then those shows with with Front A Lot when that album first. It also, that whole time. It was amazing. I wish more people could see it. It was a good moment. And um, definitely uh, Front A Lot has mixed emotions about some of those shows. But uh, <laughs> Whitey Cracker was fun to work with because he let me kind of take command of this branding and the. You know, he was a good, he's a good collaborator in that, especially during the early years. Like the same way that when Mega Rand and I get along well, he kind of lets me lead, lead the charge on the branding and like the focus. Like that yeah. was, that was like, I, I'm happy. And Kayflay in a way, when we did that record, she was happy to like, well, she kind of, that was kind of like a two headed beast that was, had yeah. a fi finite life. But like Whitey Cracker is fun to work with because he's a great rapper and he kind of just went along with it. And he was, it was always fun playing these songs. So when we did this song at Nerdapalooza 2009, all four of us. Yeah. Plus DJ and John and you, right. Yeah. It was like, yeah. that was, that was awesome. That was like a moment. And, um, yeah, I wish we had the live version, but we don't, this is the remastered version that we did for the friend of Lorian's compilation that you can find on Bandcamp. And, um, Mike Russo, what's your Instagram again? Uh, the dangerous sacred. All right, so uh, here is Do the Bruce Campbell featuring Mike Russo on guitar. And uh, yeah, man. I'm MC Lars. Thanks for thanks for interviewing me on the MC Lars podcast. <laughs> See ya. Wait, what's that noise? Whitey Cracker. Are those zombies? Zombies in the studio. This is our horrorcore song because it's got zombies on it. Sounds like a, a horrorcore song. You know who should get on this track to help us out? I'm thinking uh, Zealous One and Shaper the Dark Lord. Heck yeah. What should we call it, Lars? I think we should call it Bruce Campbell. Fresh from the cemetery, I'm a terrifying sight. With little bits of bloody flesh stuck to my mind. I will ruin you, reduce you to a puddle where you stand. Once I tear into your torso with my cold, dead hands. Blood, sweat, and tears from your wounds start spewing. Fill a water bottle, swallow all your bodily fluids. You were nailed to a wall full of holes like a dartboard. Still think you're hardcore? Bow to your dark lord. Splatter from the axe turns a loose your bread. Severed head and a vice inside of my work shed. Dead heads get brains, in heads get chains. I annihilate you, then I violate your remains. You choked and you froze because you got so scared. Cross your body in the cellar. I hope you rock down there. Burn upon your meat screams off a goblin's feet. Leave that, but never mind the act, just please. Get on the floor and do the Bruce Campbell. Get on the mic, like the chalk, like a candle. Four MCs for more than you can handle. Get, 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 do the Bruce Campbell. Get on the floor and do the Bruce Campbell. Get on the mic, like the chalk, like a candle. Four MCs for more than you can handle. Protect your neck and do the Bruce Campbell. Brains, not the kind that you get in the back of a car at the drive-in, but the kind way to hide in a fear. Laid up in the creaky house where the people shout, not in the living dead instead. And every chick with a shirt torn off Got an axe with the play worn off They roam in the shadows quick and mel And I'm telling, talking about the zombies stalking Victims with a stick them up Dead flesh rocking, don't pick them up On the side of the road to get yourself cold Become one of them and walk all slow On the quest for the gray matter Nothing fatter than a mind like mine when the zombies die Get on the floor and do the Bruce Campbell Get on the mic, wrap the trunk like a candle Four MCs for more than you can handle Got a bullet in my head and 37 more from the buckshot spread Suicidal thoughts like frost in your spine The dragon won't sleep till your soul's all mine Cut 
blood spiller will entice me I promise when I call my name I'll do it very nicely Precisely, show you ladies I'm the best at this I got them screaming for the zealous and the sexist Don't mess with this, you just can't hide Ain't gonna stop till the knife's inside Twist to the left, let me see your eyes Twist to the right, I wanna taste you die I stalk MCs who are not believers Making microphones stand out of both the femurs I love screamers, so uh oh, let's go Give me some sugar baby and do the Bruce Campbell Jeffrey Dahmer, here's my story You abhor me, you deplore me Much too gory, violent glory But this never would've happened if you hadn't ignored me You laughed at me in my fat retainer Now your son's stew is frozen in my refrigerator If you just said hello when I passed in the hall I wouldn't be snacking on your dead boyfriend all It's just another day at the Ambassador Hotel Milwaukee's best travel by your pleasing North Cell Shrugging heads, severed limbs, I'm mad belligerent Murderous cannibal, far from innocent The Dahmer dinner party is the best, it's true And everywhere I go, I'll take a part of you There's a key downstairs and your name's on it I'll get the stains out, you bring the comet Get on the floor and do the Bruce Campbell Get on the mic, wipe the trunk like a What a great interview, Mike. If you ever get your own podcast, I'm freaking listening every week. Um, great host. Fun talking about some of that stuff. Fun talking about all of it. And um, yeah, that was special. So next week, I am talking to MC Snacks, who's a Canadian juggalo nerdcore rapper, homie of mine, who actually helps me produce the Hatchet Chat series. And he's just one of my favorite friends I've met touring just, you know, through through the... We, we kicked it for the first time at the Dark carnival games convention in denver and we kind of built a friendship over the years i've worked we've worked on a few songs together three songs i think and uh, anyway he's a great guy the interview's long so it's in two parts so the next two weeks are with mc snacks mclars.com for all my updates patreon.com slash mclars to get those rare songs i'm dropping my age of ultron song check that out i love you all stay safe you know it looks like by june late june this hopefully will all be over okay love y'all talk to you soon bye